Welcome to Michael Hoffman's Revisionist History, where we put the pedal to the metal when it comes to uncovering the forbidden and the suppressed. Hello, I'm Michael Hoffman, and I'm talking with you today about Twilight Language, specifically the book I wrote on the subject, the eponymous name is indeed Twilight Language. It was published in 2021. It's a sequel to my book, Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare, which was published in 2001. I'm interviewed occasionally by podcast hosts and others, and they pretty much have me speak cold on the subject of Twilight Language. In fact, very few of them have read the entire book. I, in most cases, the hosts have scanned it or skimmed it, and then they shoot to me the question, okay, what's Twilight Language? And in order to do the necessary service to that, in other words, to pay the correct respect to so complex a subject, it really takes much more than either this podcast or really any other, unless it was to go on all afternoon or my interlocutor was someone who was a highly skilled interviewer. And even then, I would say that that interviewer has to at least read the book or the vast majority of it. And so this is an introduction to my book, Twilight Language, for those of you who haven't read it, or indeed for those of you who have read it and would like to go deeper into the subject. I would say that one of the main points that I try and describe, perhaps not entirely adequately, again, I return to the complexity of the subject, is the idea, which I think is fairly revolutionary for this book, is that much of the chatter and clatter that's part of the a conspiracy theory movement is really not only a waste of time, it's actually unconsciously, or indeed even consciously, serving the cryptocracy because it's so much noise out there, signal noise, you could say. And it really detracts from where we need to put our attention. So that people will say, I'm going to help you to become aware of these secrets. And then when nothing really happens as a result of that, there's no dramatic change, despite the fact that the secrets are fairly dramatic, or perhaps very dramatic, that were released, People are demoralized, and they lose hope, and they become despairing. And I think that's part of the intent of the cryptocracy that's working behind the scenes here, because to make people more aware or to bring to their attention truths, even radical revolutionary truths that have been concealed for dozens or hundreds or even thousands of years, is not really going to help if the audience to which you are speaking is heavily alchemically processed. And so what you have is a situation where we are not the same people as we were in 1950 or 1850, but even going back some 70, 72 years to 1950, those people, if they had received much of the revelations that are being put forth now, would have acted on them, not only in a powerful way, but also in an intelligent way. Because 
Action alone in response to these revelations is insufficient. For example, the January 6th debacle in Washington, D.C., led by Donald Trump and his cronies, that was disastrous on many levels. And it was actions which were intended to serve the cryptocracy and the Democrat Party. And indeed, even that wing of the Republican Party, which represents the deep state as much as the Democratic Party does. So we have to have intelligent action. I think in 1950, people would have had, would have responded intelligently and acted powerfully. And that's exactly why all of these secrets, or a majority of them, were not revealed. And they were deeply buried. My mentor, James Shelby Downer, talked about the cryonic process of freeze and thaw. So that when Son of Sam, uh, the lone nut who was scapegoated as Son of Sam, David Berkowitz, he did commit some of the murders. He certainly didn't commit all of them that were ascribed to the Son of Sam figure in New York City in the late 1970s. When he was arrested, Newsweek magazine had a cover that said, case closed, I'm paraphrasing now, case closed on the day that the accused perpetrator is arrested when every detective knows that's exactly when the case should be opened in earnest because you're looking for accomplices and motivations and much more information than you did not have when you have a accused person in custody. And so later on, in fact, uh, very recently on Netflix was a documentary called Sons of Sam. And I believe it's three or four episodes and at least two of them I can endorse as being reasonably accurate in pointing out many of the holes in the official investigation. And that official investigation by New York City detectives was more than just sloppy and incompetent. It was fraudulent. Uh, and uh, we can talk about that uh, further on. So the, that was frozen initially in 1977. You would have never received that information except from someone, mar a marginal radical like myself, who did not command a large audience. And so now in the 21st century, in the beginning of, of the uh, 21st century, the early decades, you have that thought. Why? Because in the alchemy of human processing, we are talking about alchemy related to the processing of the human individual, not just the cover story about base metals. In that alchemy, timing is everything. And so there is a dictum in nuclear physics, time relations among events are assumed to be first constituted by the specific physical relations obtaining between them. And that is a time and place form of mysticism dressed up in the habiliments of science. But underneath it, you get to see and peer into the tactics and techniques of the cryptocracy in this particular alchemical process, which means that it has to be synchronized to time and place. And once it has, when it's the right time, in other words, when people have been sufficiently dehumanized and bestialized, and it's the right place in terms of time and space where we are, the United States of America, where the information is released, East Coast, West Coast. I even look at uh, 
parallels of latitude and longitude, all of those are being set up by the cryptocracy. And when I tell you what the cryptocracy believes, it doesn't necessarily imply that it's what I believe. I am telling you about a madness of the occult. The occult deranges people and they engage in madness, but there is a method to that madness and quite often it works in terms of achieving results. In fact, they've been virtuoso achievers of results. So we track that. It doesn't mean that it reflects our belief, but it is their belief and we are investigators of that. So we're talking about this freeze-thaw process. Now, in the revelation of the method, which has really come on in earnest, beginning, say, in 1977, besides the Son of Sam, uh, there were also some very interesting books issued. Kenneth Grant's uh, in the mid-1970s came out with Aleister Crowley and the Hidden God and the Magical Revival, and Roger, uh, Robert K.G. Temple in roughly the same time period came out with the book The Serious Mystery, that's spelled S-I-R-I-U-S, talking about the uh, star in the can constellation Canis Maior, the great dog. Uh, those that really kicked off a revelation of the method time period and it has not relented since then and so many of these revelations they're in my book secret societies and psychological warfare which you can obtain from our website www.revisionisthistory.org and my latest book twilight language these contain those revelations but whereas in 2001 my book was mostly packed with those revelations, with some warnings about the mechanics of the revelation of the method, Twilight Language, the latest book, goes much more into depth in the process because folks who picked up the book in 2001, Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare, were not half as processed as people who are picking up Twilight Language book today. Why? Because there's been so such an intense level of alchemical processing that most people who are literate readers or even listeners or viewers of television and the internet have been subjected to so much twilight language data and symbolism that they have the status of occult initiates. They themselves have been initiated, perhaps against their will, perhaps voluntarily. And so they have a certain speed and a certain awareness. And we can speak to them at a higher level than we could in 2001. And yet, the conspiracy theory activists who have seized on some of my work, which is fine, they, you'll see much more now about alchemical processing. When I first brought that up, a lot of interviewers and uh, uh, questioners said, well, no, alchemy, that's restricted to uh, base metals. And, uh, you know, they had their own pet theories that had been fed to them by the cryptocracy over the decades. And now it's accepted that ultimately the processing that we're seeing ties into what the Rosicrucians were doing in the 17th century when they initiated some of the first uh, very heavy alchemical process as part of... Uh, the uh, emblata uh, of the uh, Hermaphroditus mortuosimilis, which you see in the epigramma, which was pioneered as part of a literary game 
of the Rosicrucian Brotherhood in terms of the alchemical marriage of, of science and magic. And uh, an there important part of the initiation process was started by Michael Mayer. He, his name is spelled M-A-I-E-R, his surname that is. And uh, his Rosicrucian alchemy synchronized with the furor generated by the European intelligentsia's frenzied fascination with the recently published Rosicrucian manifestos. And we'll have more to say about that, uh, hopefully if we have time later in this broadcast. So people are picking up on uh, saying alchemical processing of humanity. People are picking up on revelation of the method. But I would be so delighted if they were transmitting those names and that information in a way that empowered us as people to really do something about the evil that is oppressing us. What specifically? Well, how about apprehending, prosecuting, convicting, and punishing the conspirators behind the Uvalde school massacre in Texas? the conspirators behind the Las Vegas, Nevada massacre of country and Western fans in Nevada. And I could go down the list, and that list is in my book, Twilight Language, as well as Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare. But that's not happening. Other than uh, the heroic New Orleans District Attorney, Jim Garrison, who prosecuted Clay Shaw, the CIA asset, there has never been a prosecution of a high-level member of the conspiracy, or even a low-level member, mem for that matter. So I'm not talking in, in uh, mystical terms about what type of action we should take. I'm talking about prosecution, a trial before a jury of their peers, and if they're guilty, they're punished according to the laws of our nation. That hasn't happened. And that creates a tremendous demoralization in our people, and that's exactly what it's intended to do. And the, the cryptocracy is fallible. It is not infallible. One of their characteristics is high-stakes gambling at a very high risk level. That's how they have achieved so much. Betting on the apathy, the abulia, that means loss of will, and the amnesia of the American people. I'm Michael Hoffman. We're talking about Twilight Language today. My website is revisionisthistory.org. So you have to look at the revelation of the method and the alchemical processing of humanity in such a way that you understand how it is psychological warfare against the people. And I'm not seeing that in the conspiracy theory movement. I'm seeing instead that they are seizing on these as slogans and then sloganeering with them. But as they proceed onward, I'm not seeing evidence that they really understand what they're talking about in regard to this new information. So the revelation of the method James Shelby Downer taught me was in medieval manuscripts and was connected to the term must be. Now, that must be, in other words, that this was obligatory, is also in the New Testament where it says, nothing is hidden that shall not be revealed. So there isn't anything inherently occult about this process. 
It's there in the New Testament and it's prophesied as coming. But the occult is quite often guilty of saddling itself to a phenomenon and then trying to direct it in a way that favors their power grab and their enslavement of humanity. And that's what we're seeing here in the revelation of the method. So they time these revelations and they time them to come out when we are heavily processed. So what are we looking for in an audience for my book, Secret Society and Psychological Warfare in Twilight Language? We're looking for people who are alert and aware human beings. You'd be surprised what a tall order that is for someone to be a human being in this day. When I lived among the Amish for a few years, I saw human beings. Oh, they weren't perfect, far from that. I saw all kinds of mistakes and even some sins. And people who put them up on a pedestal, which is the last thing that they themselves would want, are doing them a disfavor. Of course, we do that uh, disfavor to anyone we put on a pedestal because pride is one of the greatest temptations and the worst sins that it can afflict, afflict any of us. But in terms of being close to the rhythms of nature, to what being alive consists of, and there are many other examples. The Amish is the most ready one at hand. There are plenty of people who are living off the grid. You know, they wouldn't be Amish. They disagree with the Amish, but they also have that humanity. By the way, you can also be human in downtown Manhattan or Los Angeles, all right? You may be more human than some of the preppers and others who are out there who have lost their humanity because they have forgotten that they have an obligation to their fellow man and woman, and they're only looking to feather their own nests and protect their own selves and their own families. And that's good to the extent that you also include humanity in that protection. Otherwise, it's not Christian. And if it's not Christian, it's not going to succeed. The only path to victory is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other. This Nietzschean uh, might is right, power type of thing will end up the same way Hitler ended up. So the revelation of the method is only going to have an efficacious result if you're dealing with human beings, if you're dealing with people who are more or less mesmerized by a screen, they spend a huge number of hours in front of a screen. And I regret to say that there are, you know, among the Amish, a, a church district is ruled by a bishop. That bishop has the same power as a pope of the Catholic Church, uh, more or less, okay? So in one church district, you could be allowed to have hot water that's uh, heated by propane, and uh, in another church district, you have to heat up the hot water by having a reservoir on your wood stove, and, and, and that's how you heat up the water. So it, it varies from, from district to district. And there are strict Amish, and there are more liberal Amish. So the Schwartz and Truber Amish are more strict, and then there's the New Order Amish and other groups that are, are less so. But among the Amish now, Cell phones are being allowed in some of those church districts, and it's really creating havoc for them. Whereas the old order Mennonites, the so-called Wanger Mennonites that go by uh, horse and wagon but don't have the beards and aren't as quaint as one of them told me as the Amish and therefore don't have as much uh, fame and reputation, they don't allow the cell phones and they've been doing a lot better. But anyhow, 
when you have that humanity that's decayed by all the screen time, and we already know about our young people under the age of 30 who've been more or less raised with a cell phone and with the internet screen. And we used to think that watching television was a negative if, if there was too much uh, spectating at, the, at what used to be called the glass toilet. And now, of course, we have it 24-7 on the internet and with the cell phones. And there is a loss of humanity there, but there's also a loss of humanity as a result of what we're talking about today, which is twilight language. How twilight language, uh, it, it processes us. Now, there was a man named Dr. William uh, Brian Key, and he traveled around America in the 1970s uh, with a slideshow showing the subliminals and advertisements. It was fascinating. He came to my college and gave the program. I thought it was interesting that his last name was Key, K-E-Y, uh, just like with Robert K.G. Temple, the author of the serious book, Temple was his last name. I believe it really was his last name. I'm not sure if Dr. Key changed his name or whether he was born with that surname, but, I, but that's interesting. Stuff like that is significant to me. And he showed you uh, close-ups of the uh, ads, the ice cubes in the whiskey ad, and if you looked uh, microscopically, blew it up, not necessarily microscopically, but just blew it up, uh, enlarged it, you would see skull faces in there. I remember uh, being half asleep watching a 60 Minutes episode at my girlfriend's house in the 1970s, and uh, I had a rich Italian dinner. She was Italian-American, and I was half asleep, and 60 Minutes came on with some Love Canal type of uh, pollution expose, and I caught this, the uh, skull that they had put up on the screen there, uh, flashed it very quickly, but sometimes my eye can catch things like that. And it was there, and Key pretty much documented it, and uh, we were receptive to it. You know, we hadn't been as heavily processed. We were processed, but not to the extent that we are today. But there was no follow-up. Uh, Dr. Key, to the best of my knowledge, didn't have an institute for recruiting uh, corporate executives in the advertising industry to protest this, to say that this isn't right to fool humanity in order to sell things. Of course, it's not right to deceive humanity for any reason. However, in the occult, there's a very strong sense that human beings must be deceived in order to teach them. And so that's how you get the rationale for lying and deception that, oh, we're only doing this for the betterment of mankind and humanity, men and women together, and in order to do that, we have to deceive them. Well, that's a very slippery slope once you head down it. So, revelation of the method and the alchemical processing of humanity is related to twilight language. Twilight language can be words and texts as well as graphic images. <clears throat> when you look at, for example, one of the most blatant examples of it, citations, is the uh, creation and destruction of primordial matter at the Trinity site, at the head of what was known as the old Mexican role, the Jornada del Muerto, the journey of the dead man, on the 33rd degree of north parallel latitude at the Trinity site. Now, what I've just said is packed, those few words that I've just said is just packed with symbolism. And you could write a, a chapter of a book on each one of those significant words that I brought up here in terms of where 
the creation and destruction of primordial matter known to you as the first atomic bomb explosion, the first day in history when two suns rose, first the atomic bomb and then the sun in the sky, at least to the people in the region of the desert southwest who witnessed that. And that in itself represents a kind of twilight language symbolism, first because of how minutely and precisely the atomic bomb explosion was cited. None of that was an accident. There are no coincidences in this, okay? Most of you who are uh, listening probably understand that, and I don't have to make an argument for that fact. Th these were deliberate choices that they made with this symbolism on the 33rd degree of north parallel latitude. Uh, and and on, at the head of the Hornada del Muerto, associated with the Trinity site and with the journey of the dead man. And then what explodes in July 1945? A cloud in the shape of a mushroom. What was situated in the, in the photographs that we now see, I mean, it was all top secret at the time, but what was situated near the atomic bomb explosion, a giant bottle called Jumbo, you know, given a kind of kitty cartoon name, Jumbo, oh, you know, isn't that cute? Now, what exactly was Jumbo's purpose? In my book on page eight, there's a photograph, U.S. government photo of the men associated with the uh, Trinity site. These are, I think, more laborers than scientists. And you have this huge bottle on the back of a, a semi flatbed. And Maybe canister would be a better name. It's solid uh, steel. What was in there? Well, they've never really explained to us the purpose of it. And James Shelby Downard and others have speculated that there was a homunculus inside of that. In other words, a tiny mannequin, maybe taken like Frankenstein's monster from body parts. I mean, that's what Skull and Bones, the secret society with all these great Christians that were members of it, George W. Bush and William F. Buckley Jr. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm being sardonic when I say great Christians. Um, that's really probably the secret of, of Skull and Bones, that it's related to autopsying the human body and, and, and their fascination with skulls, <clears throat> allegedly having purloined the skull of Geronimo at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. But this is what we're, uh, we're thinking that uh, Mr. Downard thought that there was a homunculus in there that they were hoping to animate by all the massive uh, radiation that occurred. And now nothing, there was no follow-up as to <clears throat> the denouement related to the bottle or much less anybody taking a great deal of notice about uh, Shelby Downard's hypothesis about the mannequin. But there you have one of the most fundamental notions. You remember that John Allegro, The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, and his not entirely successful book talking about the mushroom being the root of illumination in the West. And then here we have uh, the American people having uh, criminalized and rejected that mushroom, uh, largely being misled by the pharmacological industry into believing that the uh, medicines that God has put on this earth that must be used uh, correctly and judiciously um, and not uh, in the sense that they were used by many people in the 1960s and 70s, which is called masturbating the great vision, which is what happened to many of the medicines in God's medicine cabinet. 
Also, you're not supposed to take them throughout your life. When you get the message, you hang up the phone and, uh, and these various uh, divine medicines uh, can provide a healing and awareness and, and consciousness. And then when you have that, you move on because they're also yinizing you. That's a neologism that I've coined, but I'm, it's related to the yin and yang of Asian medicine. And uh, all of these things are very expanding and uh, you don't want to continue expanding. You want to have a balance between yin and yang. So they're, they're dangerous in the sense if they're misused, but that's true of anything, isn't it? And so here we have the uh, image of the rejected uh, consciousness razor, the mushroom, and there are others. Ayahuasca is another one. And of course, all kinds of uh, medicines from God's medicine cabinet for healing practically any disease, which is the tragedy of the Amazon wilderness being destroyed when there are thousands of plants there that we know not. Perhaps the indigenous people of the area know of them, but we know not and have not discovered, and they may be lost to us. When God intended for us to, uh, at least if we had the proper will and orientation, to access them. That's the hell of it. But so I juxtapose this consciousness of the mushroom rejected uh, in the 1940s, and then the mushroom pops up in the most dramatic way, like a tulpa in front of our faces, in front of the face of all, the collective face of humanity. In, in, uh, in 1945 at the Trinity site on the 33rd degree line, and then later, of course, in incinerating the innocent civilians of Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, in August of that year on the specious notion uh, that that was the only way to end World War II. Actually, what it was is was the only way to guarantee the enforcement of the unconditional surrender doctrine, which Harry Truman and his uh, associates had decided to impose on Japan. Japan was willing to surrender since 1943 with conditions specifically related to the survival of the emperor. Who told me that? Walter Trohan. Uh, the top White House reporter. He knew dozens of, uh, or not dozens, but he, he, well, he probably knew close to a dozen presidents. Um, he and I spoke. He was a, a crackerjack reporter for the Chicago Tribune under Colonel McCormick. He told me that in 1943, Admiral Leahy was uh, Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt's chief of staff, told him that the Japanese were wanting to surrender in 1943 but the uh, U.S. government demanded unconditional surrender. So that was two more years of a needless war. That's, your, uh, that's the uh, occupation government that you call the USA and the White House and uh, all of these spook groups that are now called an intelligence community. Where, where do they come up with these Orwellian uh, neologisms? It's a, it's a community? You mean they bake bread and, and they sew quilts? and they go, they go to bingo. It's not an intelligence community, it's an octopus. It's a seven-headed serpent. Uh, it's the FBI, the NSA, the CIA. There's no, nothing communing about it except utter evil. And so uh, the atomic bomb was uh, blown off, detonated. There's the mushroom cloud. What more do we need to connect? What more do we need to connect? John Allegro claimed that it was the mushroom that was the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. I'm not entirely convinced of that, although I do reproduce in the uh, ultimate page of Twilight Language uh, an image of that, 
of an illustration of the mushroom in the garden, this myth or legend, uh, which comes from the medieval era. I'm Michael Hoffman. I'm talking about Twilight Language today. My website is revisionisthistory.org. You can also reach us on Twitter at at Hoffman Michael A. So A in the circle, at Hoffman Michael A on Twitter. Well, after the atomic bomb explosion, we had the killing of the king, which Sir James Fraser uh, talked about in his book, uh, The Golden Bow. And who was that king? It was John F. Kennedy. Uh, he was the king of Camelot, if you recall. His administration was known as Camelot. And his wife had queenly virtues of beauty and poise and fashion. And he himself was perhaps the most nice-looking uh, president since Thomas Jefferson in, in the early 19th century. And he was sacrificed on uh, close to the 33rd degree of north parallel latitude uh, at the triple underpass uh, at the conjunction of three roads, uh, three old Dallas roads in Dealey Plaza, site of the first Masonic temple in uh, Texas, and also uh, accompanied by the Jewes. This has nothing to do with the Jews. This is spelled J-U-W-E-S. It's from Masonic lore. They're called the three unworthy assassins of Hiram, the uh, architect of the Temple of Solomon. It's a whole Masonic ritual associated with uh, their assassination of Hiram and then the fate that befalls them. And you have the famous or notorious photo of the three hobos who turn up in Dallas on the day of the assassination. And it's a uh, recreation of a Masonic image and the initiates could spot that it was a signature symbol saying that this was our work. And of course, there's no record of those men's identities in the, uh, at least insofar as has been revealed in the logs of the Dallas Police Department, even though they were arrested. So it seems to me likely that uh, the whole point of their appearance was to uh, imprint our consciousness with the three unworthy assassins who also popped up in the Jack the Ripper murder series. You can read about this in our newsletter. We've published 122 issues of our newsletter, Revisionist History, and number 122 has information uh, linking the Jewes, again, having nothing to do with the Jews, J-U-W-E-S, the Masonic Jewes, with the uh, three uh, Jewes that appeared in Dealey Plaza on November 22nd, 1963. And so as not to keep you in suspense, and by the way, you can uh, obtain that newsletter from our website, revisionisthistory.org. Uh, what happened was, is that uh, um, Charles Jerusalem Warren, that was uh, the chief name of the chief of police of London at the time of the Jack the Ripper murders, he was called Jerusalem because he was an amateur archeologist and a very good one, uh, spent time in Jerusalem trying to excavate the uh, foundation of the Temple of Solomon, and he made other discoveries. And it was all part of the, he was a, a high Freemason, Charles Warren, a uh, very enthusiastic one as well, and the founder of the Ars Quatar Cornatorum uh, Lodge for Masonic Research. And that journal is worth you finding. Cornell University has it in its annex, every copy, to the best of my knowledge, last time. I was researching there, and it's in other places as well, probably online in its entirety. 
uh, very worthwhile for your follow-up research. Get away from the DVDs and all of the superficial, uh, easy to access, and very suspicious uh, uh, pedestrian, juvenile, sophomoric uh, answers and explanations and studies or purported studies and, and delve deeply and do the heavy reading and, and hone your powers of concentration. So Warren uh, is a very important Freemason and then he gets appointed as police chief very conveniently during the Jack the Ripper murders yeah, um, I follow the line, even though he didn't get everything right, of uh, Stephen Knight in his book, Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution. It's been much traduced since it was published. Again, one of those revelation of the method books that came out in the mid-1970s that I was telling you about earlier. And in there, uh, he identifies Sir William Gull, the court physician to Queen Victoria, as the uh, also court abortionist, uh, as the Jack the Ripper. And so uh, there was a revelation of the method going on even back then. I realize that's premature, but it occasionally does happen either outside the script or there's a renegade aspect to the cryptocracy that releases it for whatever reason. And that was there was writing on the wall um, outside the death site of one of the uh, women that had been butchered. And on there were the words, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, the Jewes will not be blamed for nothing for this. In other words, you know, uh, in other words, the Jewes will be quite correctly blamed for this. Uh, so the unworthy Masonic craftsmen would take, were the ones who were guilty. That's what, you know, and only a Mason would be able to write those words. Well, Charles Warren, who had never gone to any of the Jack the Ripper murder sites, to the best of our knowledge, as far as it's been reported, uh, came racing when he heard, when he was told, that those words were written on the wall <clears throat> and he made sure that they were not photographed. Uh, he interdicted uh, the reporter that was there who took a photo and that photo was destroyed and then he wiped those words off. They were written in chalk on the wall. The bloody apron of the uh, Jack the Ripper victim was below it and he wiped those words out. However, in the uh, official clandestine or semi-clandestine records of the London police, he did record that it was in there. And it took Stephen Knight uh, until, 19, and until the 1970s to discover the fact that that's what was written on that wall. And so there's a link between the two there, and there's many other ones. If you'd like to read more about it, it's in Revisionist History Newsletter number 122. It's fairly prominently featured at our website www.revisionisthistory.org. And um, you see on board the, uh, after the Kennedy assassination, you see on board the uh, photo of uh, Lady Bird Johnson with a grin on her face. Uh, Jackie is utterly distraught. She's a post-traumatic stress victim and would be for the rest of her life after taking a piece of her husband's brain off of the uh, trunk of the uh, Ford Lincoln automobile uh, that was the death's car, which by the way was recycled, refurbished, and used by other presidents who smoked their cigarettes and told their dirty jokes inside of it instead of being enshrined and memorialized and uh, taken out of service. For many years it remained in service. God only knows what went on in there afterwards. So there's Lady Bird Johnson on page 13 of Twilight Language grinning uh, very inappropriately. And uh, I asked Mr. Sh uh, 
Shelby Downard about that, and he quoted from Macbeth, when the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won. Mr. Downard believed that Macbeth was very important in terms of a key to the Kennedy assassination, and of course, Macbeth entails a killing of the king. And uh, later on, post-Kennedy, JFK Kennedy assassination, came out a play uh, in New York called Mac Bird, which identified Johnson with the killer Macbeth. Of course, in a jocular fashion, which could be a plausible denial, could be applied, and oh no, we, we didn't intend to say that, that Johnson had anything to do with that. Well, truth or consequences, right? I mean, there's truth, and then there are consequences to finding out the truth. And there is a town in New Mexico, it's called Truth or Consequences. Where do you think it's located? On the 33rd degree of north parallel latitude. You think that's an accident? I've talked to people from there, oh no, no, it's just, we decided on that name when the TV show came out, it was a Chamber of Commerce promotion. And yeah, abracadabra, yep, Chamber of Commerce promotion, right, got it. Now, when we're talking about the alchemical processing of humanity, we not only go into the Rosicrucian manuscripts, which are identified in the hippy-dippy New Age and even in among the intellectual avant-garde, especially of that time in the, uh, in the late Renaissance, uh, as being uh, quite a rebuke to kings and Catholic emperors and popes and all of those repressive inquisitors. And here is this beautiful, unencumbered, unchained Rosicrucian enlightenment to come about, and, you know, and blah, blah, blah. Well, actually, the Rosicrucian enlightenment was put forth by the cryptocracy in order to snare in many good people who were upset about the Inquisition, uh, who were upset about papal dictatorship. Actually, what you had was an occult dictatorship inside uh, the Renaissance uh, Church of Rome, which was then the uh, flashpoint for the rise of the occult inside Protestantism, and then eventually outside of Protestantism in groups like Freemasonry. And that's in my 700-page uh, book, The Occult Renaissance Church of Rome, which to me is as important for your study as Twilight Language or Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare in terms of wh where we're following this thread. But so the Rosicrucians came up with this um, beautiful chiffon, uh, as Jim Brandon once described uh, Mozart's The Magic Flute, because that was a Masonic opera. And, and Mr. Brandon felt that at the core of that was a great evil that was disguised by the beauty of Mozart's magnificent music. And the Rosicrucians made appeals to the very highest and finest aspects of our uh, longing as spiritual beings uh, for goodness, for love, for freedom. And they manipulated that uh, into, as part, made it part of the chain of transmission of uh, alchemical processing. But, uh, some, but also, this has been detected, it started to be detected uh, in France in the 1950s by a very interesting gentleman called Guy Debord in his book, The Society of the Spectacle. And from there, 
you got what's known as situationism, and uh, you got the study of spectacularism, which relates to alchemical processing. Now, they'd never say that. I'm the one that is drawing that conclusion. Probably some or many situationists might object to, uh, to that linkage that I'm making here. So that's my responsibility. I'll quote from Guy Debord. The society of the spectacle had begun everywhere in coercion, deceit, and blood, but it promised a happy path. Now it no longer says, what appears as good, what is good appears. It simply says, it is so. It admits, frankly, that it is no longer essentially reformable, though change be its very nature, in order to transmute for the very worst every particular thing. It has lost all its general illusions about itself. End quote from Guy Debord in his book, The Society of the Spectacle, but you have to get the preface to the fourth Italian edition, I believe, in order to read that. That's where that quote comes from. I'm not sure Mr. Debord ever heard of James Shelby Downard. I seriously doubt he ever heard of, of, of this writer myself. But he's really hit on it, hasn't he? He's talking about that Rosicrucian era when the society of the spectacle had begun everywhere in coercion, deceit, and blood, as I told you. That's the sub rosa aspect to it. But it had promised a happy path because it needed our volition. It needed our cooperation with it in order to achieve that. We had to surrender to the idea that, oh, this, there's some goodness here. There's a secret teaching I want to be good, I want to be truthful, I want to be loving. But yes, at the same time, however, in conceding to it that it's a secret benevolent teaching, right there you enter into the precincts of hypnotism. You're starting to suspend your skepticism. And look at what he says. Now that we're in the... I, I, I'm speaking here, but I'm, this is my commentary. Now that we're in the revelation of the method era, when they're shutting us down, when they're coming right out and telling us what they want to do to us, what they're going to do to us if we continue to cooperate with them. And what does the board say? They no longer say what appears is good, what is good appears. They simply declare it is so. In other words, their script, which is not reality, only if we believe in it and cooperate in it, they say it is. This is the reality that inevitable science fiction future that they have projected through, not all science fiction is in any way negative, some of it is helpful and, and interesting, but through certain key science fiction tracts, they created this inevitable future. And we see this in Hollywood, in, in some of the designs in the movies. How, For example, how they picture uh, alien beings. And, and the image we have in our heads comes from the, the movies The Alien. And, you know, in the second movie, in the third movie, and then the sequel to that. And I'm not saying those designers, those brilliant designers who created that alien image are involved in anything uh, nefarious. But I am saying that that has been absorbed into our consciousness. And many design themes first pioneered by Hollywood visionaries, not all of them benign by any means, then become reality because we seize on those on their monopoly on these images, we succumb to their monopoly, and then we make those images our reality. 
So the board says, they tell us it is so. They admit frankly, it is, they are no longer essentially reformable. The New York Times, NBC News, CBS News, the Washington Post, are they reformable? I mean, by a miracle of God, they are. We never want to uh, cut out God's miraculous grace. He can do anything. It says in the book of Genesis, is anything too hard for the Lord? No, nothing is. But short of that, they are nearly unreformable. And they announce that. It doesn't matter how much you show the corruption, how much you show the deceit, the treachery, the destruction that has been wrought by the cryptocracy. They don't care. They are in charge. They admit that they are no longer essentially reformable. And yet, their very nature is change. In order to transmute our lives into the very worst, they have lost all their general illusions about themselves. So what we're referring to here is the condition of humanity. The supposition of the conspiracy theorists is that their listeners and viewers are fine. They're at a pitch of psychological and spiritual health. It's just the cryptocracy that's sick. I don't think so. Straight is the gate and narrow the way, and few there are who find it. Many of the interviews I've done are on shows that feature so-called music for their intros that even 20 years ago would have been regarded as from the lower circles of Dante's Inferno. Now the screeching cacophony is heard on programs broadcast with the alleged intent to overcome the diabolic. Really? I think it's evidence of having been processed. The hosts themselves are processed and don't know it. Then the subject matter is a potpourri of New Age diarrhea. I regret having to employ that metaphor, but ultimately many of these podcasts leave listeners and viewers more distracted and confused than before. Data without the ability to detect fraud and discern the diamonds from the ashes is not empowering. With a dehumanized, programmed, and conditioned audience, the revelations of the secrets of history stimulate their adrenaline. It just becomes a thrill drug, the next big thrill that pumps their adrenaline and massages their itching ears. That's not my intention whatsoever. I'm intending to arm people for spiritual battle and in so doing to enable them, to edify them, to give them guidance and direction so we can indict prosecute and convict occult malefactors so we can alert people who have been predestined to seek the truth to the facts they need. First, to rescue them from their own mind's decay. Regard the beam in your own eye before you look for the moat in another's eye. I tell people what they don't want to hear. That's not popular. Human nature desires compliments. Jeremiah and Isaiah told uncomfortable truths to Israel. Isaiah said that the Israelites had unclean lips. Isaiah isn't too popular in Talmudism. The Babylonian Talmud decrees that due to the fact that Isaiah pronounced that judgment, he was killed by having his mouth sawed in half. You can read about that in my banned book, Judaism Discovered, available on our website, revisionisthistory.org. The right wing doesn't want to hear the truth. 
any more than the left wing does. Go neither to the left nor the right. Let me give you an instance. QAnon has captured the monopoly on studying the child molestation networks among the elite. QAnon has become the signature phrase, the kind of almost twilight language phrase for anyone who wants to seriously and judiciously look into the possibility or probability of elite child molestation networks functioning at high levels of power. Now that seems eminently reasonable as a line of inquiry to me. QAnon's thesis, and quote me now in context here, is correct that Satanists high in government operate networks of child molestation. That part is correct, but stay with me on the quote. QAnon is reckless. QAnon makes false accusations. Thou shalt not bear false witness, and QAnon has done that, which is one reason why the cryptocracy has made QAnon synonymous with those investigations to discredit the investigations themselves. Now, the fact is, some elite child molestation rings are real. Jeffrey Epstein's was real. He was killed in a high-security cell on Attorney General William Barr's watch. Jimmy Savile's child molestation ring was real. He and his British ring were protected by Prince Charles, now King Charles III, and Prime Minister Margaret, Margaret Thatcher, the heroine to the Conservatives and the good pal of Ronald Reagan. Recently, fashion house Balenciaga ran a groomer's twilight language advertisement in November of 2022, hinting at child porn and bondage. I quote now from the New York Post of November 21st. Balenciaga is under fire online after showing two young girls holding stuffed animals dressed in what appears to be bondage gear in an advertisement. The fashion house, which has been associated with the likes of Kim Kardashian and previously made headlines for its daring fashion choices, featured the, the mini-models in Balenciaga apparel holding plush toys that contrasted with the horrifying bondage get-ups. In one image, a ginger-haired little girl sported a t-shirt from the brand while holding the strap connected to a white bear, which was in a vest with a padlock choker around its neck. In another, a brunette child donned a blue outfit while clutching a purple plush animal, which was sporting similarly BDSM attire end quote from the New York Post. BDSM stands for Bondage Sadomasochist. Intended to function as a pseudo-subliminal, the ad included a photograph of a purposefully poorly hidden court document mentioning virtual child porn. So, the cryptocracy deliberately reveals to us through advertisements like this, that they are working to legalize sex with children and they dare us to do something about it. They're betting we'll do nothing, just sink further into their process of alchemical bondage. 
The twilight language trigger word here is a double entendre, bondage. It's a hellfire club joke on us and our children. With supreme confidence, the cryptocracy mocks us, wagering that just as they, one, processed us into conferring upon sex between men the bond of matrimony defined by Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 5, as only between a man and a woman, and two, pushing on us their raving madness that a female impersonator is a woman, they intend in the future to, number three, condition us into acceptance of sex with children, and lastly, number four, incest between parents and their children and among siblings. Actually, that's the penultimate stage. Now, all of those stages are made possible by the rationale of love. If you love someone, your love should be legal. So, for example, if you love your bulldog, it should be legal that you have sex with your bulldog. And if you have carnal lust that you call love for your brother or sister or your mother or father, that should be legal too. After all, it's love. Now, the actual last stage here in the alchemical crucible of our bestialization will be sex with animals. This is the sorceress grooming process that I have attempted to de deconstruct in my book, Twilight Language. But the processing has been so intense that many of these revelations are greeted with apathy. I regret to say that Americans have become degenerate voyeurs, including inside the conspiracy theory movement and perhaps most of all there. Degenerate voyeurs who desire to be fascinated by more of these spectacular prodigies. And this is leading to the unprecedented apathy that we see is the order of the day. It's understandable that people are caught in the coils of their own intrigue. And the question is, when will we abandon that and pursue dialectical acuity and forensic skills and apply those to pattern detection, using hypervigilance to do so? Let's travel back in time 400 years to the year 1617, when Michael Mayer, the Rosicrucian alchemist, issued his manuscript, Atalanta Fugians, that is, Atalanta Fleeing. It's not Atlanta or Atlantis, it's Atalanta. Atalanta Fleeing in 1617. And there, and it's in page 247 of my book, Twilight Language, there we see a being that has male and female organs combined into one body. It is Epigramma 33, Emblem 33, the secret of nature, it is said. Michael Myers' Rosicrucian alchemy synchronized with the furor generated by the European intelligentsia's frenzied fascination with the then recently published Rosicrucian manifestos 
They were published in 1614, the Fama Fraternitas, and in 1615, the Confessio Fraternitas and Consideratio Brevis, which served to announce the debut of the Rosicrucian Brotherhood on the public stage. Now, the Rosicrucians were the connection between the occultism of the Church of Rome that I documented in my book, The Occult Renaissance Church of Rome, and groups that had been seeded by Rome, but which were forming inside of Protestantism and later outside of it in various openly satanic organizations. So that's what we had going on here is the Rosicrucian Brotherhood debuting on the public stage in the early 1600s. And they were embarked upon a perception of science as inextricably tied to alchemical objectives. So these manuscripts, the Fama and the Confessio, are believed to have been authored by Johann Valentin Andrea and his Tubenian circle, which included Johann Arndt, Tobias Hess, and Abraham Holzel, among others. And there's another foundational Rosicrucian text, The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz of 1605, also by Johann Valentin Andrea and the so-called Knights of the Golden Stone. The Rosicrucian manifestos reflected Paracelsus's anticipation of the capacity of human brain power to take command over the stars and create new forms of life as the anima mundi, the spirit of the world, dictates. And you can find that identification in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. So here we're observing the launching of a major axis of the cryptocracy, whose subsequent influence on our world is in some respects inestimable. Quoting now from Dame Frances Yates in her book, The Rosicrucian Enlightenment, published by Oxford University in 2002, page 67, and we quote, Andrea's extraordinary concept, a literary game, or ludibrium, as he would later call it, the creation of a secret society, combined with a very serious call for a radical new reformation that would incorporate science, that the sciences are thought of in Renaissance hermetic Kabbalistic terms as related to Magia and Kabbalah is natural for the period. End quote from Francis Yates. So you see here that the terms Magia and Kabbalah come from a Catholic philosopher of the occult, Count Giovanni Pico della Mirandola. And it has its origin in the pontificate of Alexander VI, the so-called Borgia Pope, who executed Girolamo Savonarola, who was the great Florentine reformer who was the enemy of the occult and the enemy of that particular pontiff. So what we're getting a hint of here is twilight language, the literary game, the ludibrium, and if we turn to uh, Edighoffer, and as brought out by Walter J. Haingraf 
in his Dictionary of Gnosis and Western Esotericism, published by Brill Academic in the year 2006, page 1011, quote, Jacob Bohm, in his Morgenrotha im Aufgang, that is, Rising Dawn of 1612, wrote that in the man who is fulfilled, the planet Mercury gives rise to an inspired language. In the same way, the Confessio states that the time has come to speak the Adamic language, i.e. the primordial idiom, which allowed Enoch to converse with angels. The Rosicrucians claim to already possess the knowledge of this language, but they make it plain that it cannot be read and understood except by a minority. They proclaim the age of the tongue, but they impose the law of silence on whoever rallies to them. Secrecy is a fundamental element in the Confessio Fraternitatis, which mentions it at least ten times. Certain realities are held to be inaccessible without a long initiation. Hermes Trismegistus says to Asclepius, It is an impious thing to divulge to the masses a teaching filled with the divine majesty, the true philosophy that the Confessio extols is Hermetist. End quote from Walter J. Hangrave. So, what we're seeing here is a clear premonition of the infernal marriage of scientism with magic, alchemy, and Kabbalah. The capacity of human brain power to take command and then talk of an Adamic language that supposedly Adam and Eve spoke. This initiated the occult, the occult imperium in the West. The Rosicrucian Manifesto is afforded by the accelerating creation in our century 21, along lines of Egyptian-type chimera of millennia ago, humanoid animals, for example, such as Anubis and Set, which we're now seeing in modern medicine, and the legendary Babylonian man-headed fish being Ones, called Dagon in the Bible. In our 21 Age of Revelation, comparatively little dissembling is required to propagate public acceptance of laboratory-conceived monsters. Not only is the abomination acknowledged, but after a pro forma nod to anxiety about unproven forms of intervention and the unintended consequences, these abominations are promoted as the fulfillment, in the words of Nathaniel Rich, of the lost reverence for the wonders of the natural world. In the Wall Street Journal of May 1st, 2021, Mr. Rich candidly explains the utopian blandishments entailed within the process by which acceptance of the Frankenstein horrors will be achieved. Quote, only after the public has warmed to the tools of synthetic biology and land regeneration, enticed by cruelty-free meat and flood-resilient coastlines and COVID immunity, we will be prepared to undertake uncomfortable conversations over hybrid species. Con end quote. Concerning this alchemy, he further writes, in recent scientific milestones, you can make out the sharpening contours of our unnatural future. Researchers in La Jolla, California and Kuming, China, announced that they had successfully implanted human cells into Mac monkey embryos, 
The experiment suggested it would soon be possible to engineer a novel hybrid species, a human-monkey chimera. Scientists have created transgenic species for decades. We have already seen humanized pigs, cows, and rats, and the first COVID vaccines available in the U.S. were initially tested on mice implanted with human genes. And he, further quoting from him, the word monster comes from the Latin monere, to warn, remind, a root shared by the word premonition. The future now emerging is one of unabashed, targeted interference in natural processes through the manipulation of genetic codes. But the act of interference is not itself alarming. It's as old as civilization. What's novel today is the effort to use these tools to reverse some of the harm we've done. Monsters serve a crucial function. They invite us to confront what's coming, to accept techniques for reshaping reality. End quote. And here we see the reflection of what Guy Debord, where I quoted from him at the top of the broadcast, they no longer hide themselves from us. This is tied into the so-called Rosicrucian Enlightenment. Actually, it was the Rosicrucian, the beginning of the Rosicrucian bestialization of humanity. We are devolving from an angelic state to a bestial state, and along with that is this language. This language, which originally, you will note in the quotation from Hangrave, was to be very secret. And it was necessary that it would be secret. And they even mention the Enochian language to communicate with angels. Well, that comes from Dr. John Dee, astrology royal to, uh, astrologer royal to Queen Elizabeth I, the Protestant uh, Queen of England. And he was a diabolist who was talking to uh, disembodied evil spirits. And he called it an Enochian language. Of course, he tried to put the best spin on it that he could. He didn't identify the angels as diabolic. He said they were angelic, although it's all contra-biblical. I mean, Saul raised the witch of Endor. He, he, through the witch of Endor, he raised Samuel. That not only angered Samuel, it angered God Almighty. We have, we have the blueprint for this. We've been warned about it in advance and we're heedless because of the processing under which we have gone. But it's that primordial idiom that the cryptocracy deludes itself into believing it has mastered and communicated sub rosa to us the hypnosis and the, the ideas that are required to subvert Christian morality and ethics and the gospel of Jesus Christ itself and overthrow it. It has been a gradual incremental process very few have been the revolutionary shocks because a revolutionary shock to a healthy population functions as a wake-up call. We today are not a healthy population. There are only a minority of us who are healthy in body, mind, and spirit. The rest of us are increasingly decayed, especially when you see this apathy. I'm going to be talking more about this in a subsequent broadcast. It'll be Twilight Language Part 2. My work is supported by donations. Donations from Truth Seekers have made this podcast possible, that we could get on a podcast system. Uh, we could hire someone to teach us how to do it. 
and to also enhance the uh, means by which we intend to interview guests in the future using certain uh, technology which isn't cheap. And we appreciate those donations as well as the sale of our books, our recorded broadcasts, our newsletters. All of that is available online at revisionisthistory.org. And you can also write to me, Michael Hoffman, at P.O. Box 849, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, 83816. This broadcast is copyright 2022, all rights reserved.